Good evening, listeners. It's June 25th, and you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is currently just after 7 p.m. and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Lillian Padgett-Cobb. And I'm Scott Classic. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 grad students in over 80 different programs of study. Here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and the personal stories of one student each week. So if you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or if you just want to find out more about the awesome research and awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests, and that's got links to our Twitter and uh, Facebook pages as well. So I encourage you to check that out. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Juan Mulia from the College of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences. His research is related to carbon cycling and studying ocean currents. Hi, Juan. Hello. Uh, Thanks for joining us tonight. No, thank you for... Thank you for having me. And can you tell us a little bit about what you do? So uh, my thesis work is um, related to climate science. I'm a climate modeler, and I work on understanding the ocean physics and some aspects of its biology during uh, ice ages. All right. You're studying the last ice age, and... Um, why is it important for us to know more about the last ice age? So um, the climate of the of the Earth, as we know it, is uh, characterized by um, warm um, tropical regions and colder um, polar regions, and we have a fairly mild. Um, climate in in many parts of the of the of the earth, and humans are very comfortable with that. However, um, as uh, through thousands of years, the climate of, of of the planet changes, and for the past two million years, it has changed between uh, cold periods or ice ages or, or glacial periods, however you want to call them, and warmer pre- periods as the one we know. And uh, to understand how those uh, ice ages were, we can understand how the the climate system of the planet changes between different states, for example, a cold state and a warm state. Mm-hmm. That's really cool one. Um, so just as uh, sort of a background, um, how do we know or what, what has indicated to us about the past that it, um, its climate has been different in different regions, but um, also going back through time, the past several thousands of years? So it all started with uh, geologists seeing that uh, glaciers have been much larger in many regions of the world uh, in past times. But then as uh, techniques uh, have been developed. Uh, We know a lot about the past climate, especially recent, geologically speaking, um, recent um, 
periods like the last ice age, which was 20,000 years ago. And we know things from, for example, ice samples from Antarctica and Greenland and glaciers. Uh, we know other things by looking at fossils from the sediment, um, from the ocean sediments and from the land sediments. There are many tracers that um, the both the climate system and the and the environment leaves behind during a, a climate state that scientists can look for later and uh, understand what happened in the past. That's really cool. So you use in the model the data gathered from sediment cores. Um, and so these are samples that have been gathered previously. Can you tell us a little bit more about those sediment cores? So these sediment cores are sediment samples which look like a, like a cylinder of sediment, in my case taken from different places at the bottom of the sea. Um, and if you, if you look uh, sideways to these, to these cylinders of sediments, um, scientists have techniques to date, to, to know uh, from what, from what um, age was each of the, of the parts of, the, of that sediment core or, or, or cylinder, as I'm referring it to. And um, for example, you can, you can look at um, fossils, in those sediments, the characteristics of the of the organic matter that are in in those sediments, even the pockets, the small pockets of water that are in those sediments, so all those all those things can can tell scientists things about the past. And uh, I do climate modeling to understand what characteristics of the ocean would explain the things that the scientists that look at those cores see. So that's really interesting. So basically, you have these tracers in the core, and then based on the composition of the what's in the sediment core, you can make inferences about the the ocean's composition, the elemental composition at a point different points in time. That's correct. There are um, many things that you can you can infer from these from these from these sediment cores. For example. Uh, there are techniques to infer the mean temperature of the ocean, techniques to infer the uh, size of um, the or the mass of ice that was uh, over continents during ice ages, um, things like productivity, like biological productivity. Yes. So that refers to like how much biological material is being produced in right. a particular yeah. area at a particular time. Right. right. So as we understand it, a lot of your work involves um, looking at isotope data from, I guess that's sort of one of the ways you can infer a particular process by a particular isotopic signature of different elements that you find in the sediment cores. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? So um, I work, on, I work on, on climate modeling. So I'm using a, I'm using a computer model that, uh, pro, that has... It has the ocean, the global ocean physics, and the global ocean of what we call the biogeochemistry. That is the relation between the biology and the chemistry of the ocean and the and the sediments. And um, 
my the, the model that I work with has the produces um, as a result three isotopes which are also looked at the same time by the scientists that look at the at these sediment cores. These isotopes, well, if if you want to know the names, one is C13, the other yeah, one is N15, and then names. <laughs> radiocarbon, which you many people probably heard about, and. Uh, they they so some of them explain the can tell us can tell us things about the physics of the ocean so for example ocean currents and then others can tell us things about biology like for example how much uh, production of phytoplankton there was at a specific region of the ocean um so i so my model produces these produces um, more, simulates these isotopes, and then I can compare this, the isotopes that I simulate to the iso to the real isotopes that people measure, and I can explain the signals that the that the people who measure are seeing. Okay. So, this model that you're using, mm -hmm. um, can you go? Can you explain for us um, how? What is this model based on? How do you? construct a model or so like if you're starting yeah. about a model as like a recipe how would yeah. you go about and like is it a like a cake that you bake from scratch or um how do you go about recreating something like this model so in a model you when you build a model either computational or or with a pen and paper today they are all computational you start with what you know and the basics so in this case, my model uses uses the, equa the, the has the physical equations that explain how the ocean moves. Those are equations that um, have been written centuries ago. They are the Navier-Stokes equations, uh, and then you start making it more complex. You add I don't know energy balance with the atmosphere or uh, ice thermodynamics. Just more and, equations going into right. the model, and they're all like working together within. Yes, and some of these equations are not uh, known mechanically, so they are not described by by physics. By physics, they are more empirical. Like, for okay. example, what the equation that explains the how, the relation between the ocean density and it, and the salinity and its and its salt content and its temperature, it's empirical. Um, However, these models are huge, and the part of one scientist is usually a, a small part of that model. So it's a, it, it's a contribution of many scientists through three years. So, for example, the model that I work with was first developed in 2000, 2001, and since then, since then it has been um, increased in complexity by, by different people. Okay, so it's like you just keep on adding layers, and then your layer will add um, some component about how the ocean has moved and circulated in the past um, several thousand years, and then some other scientist, if they're interested in the implications of your model, can build upon that later, and it's all sort of uh, iterative, I guess? Exactly. Yeah. So this is sort of an approach that can be applied globally or more locally how is this it how can you talk about the resolution mm -hmm. i think it was yes so um what we know about the ocean in in the past is um uh, they are global signals it's hard to know 
uh, what the what the the small features of the ocean in in a past uh, stance like the last ice age uh, as uh, so in the in the modern oceanography people can describe things as small as a as a river mouth to the ocean for example in when we go to paleoceanography which is the one the 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 field that I work with, you are looking at more global signals. So you're not looking at like the particular ripples of the of some current. You're looking at the mean current and how it moved through an o through an ocean basin that could be, for example, the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. We look at big signals and the, the time scale that of of those signals is is of of, of the order of thousands of years. So with your model, are you looking at a global perspective or are you, I think you mentioned that you're studying specifically the Southern Ocean. So I do study the, the Southern Ocean, which is, by the way, a huge part of the ocean. And it's, the Southern Ocean is, uh, can you tell us where that is for visitors? everything that is. So it's the, that ocean that is around Antarctica and goes uh, north to 30 degrees south. So it's like um, everything that is south of, of South Africa and, and Australia. Um, so I, one of the parts of my study is how changes in the biology in, in this part of the ocean, the Southern Ocean, had a global impact in the climate system during the last ice age. And as I understand it, a lot of that just uh, comes down to the carbon content in the ocean and how it's moved, and that's a lot, a lot of um, what your model is predicting, right? Is yes. So I'm trying to uh, understand how we know that there was, uh, during the last ice age, and during ice ages in particular, there was less carbon in the atmosphere. However, scientists don't, don't know exactly why. And uh, <clears throat> I'm studying a, a process, a biological process in the Southern Ocean that could have transferred carbon from the atmosphere to the ocean uh, in the last ice age and explain why there was lower carbon in the atmosphere okay. uh, during, that, uh, during that time. Because if there was lower carbon in the atmosphere during, uh, during the last ice age, then that means that that carbon was somewhere else. Yeah. And we think it was in the ocean. And then as, um, as you're talking about carbon, is that uh, carbon dioxide that's dissolved in the atmosphere and then goes into the oceans because it's exactly. soluble and not other types of carbon as well? Yeah, it's carbon dioxide. We tend to geek out and uh, differentiate different types of dissolved <laughs> organic or particulate <laughs> carbon and <laughs> um, just to keep everyone on the same page. But yeah, so a lot of carbon dioxide circulating and moving around. Um, so what has your model predicted so far? My model has predicted that um, the ocean um, in the last ice age had some similar characteristics characteristics to the one today, but um, it had also many differences. So in the physical aspect, I have predicted that um, the there is a there is a huge surface current in the Atlantic Ocean that goes from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere, so the, to the North Atlantic. Um, it, it's a, currently, it's a very important part of the, of the general circulation of the ocean. And that circulation was much slower 
during the last ice age. So since the circulation was slower, then you the deep ocean was um, had a much slower ventilation. So it took much longer for the deep ocean during the last ice age to um, get in contact with the atmosphere. So that produced that a lot that a, that a lot of carbon was he uh, was uh, preserved in that sluggish deep ocean. Okay. At the same time, I also see that um, as a complement to that, uh, uh, an increase in the in the phytoplankton production in the Southern Ocean probably transferred a lot of carbon from the from the surface ocean to the to the deep ocean. So those two processes combine, one physical and one biological or biogeochemical, if you want to be more specific, uh, conspired um, to bring a lot of carbon from the atmosphere to the deep ocean. Okay. So one thing that sort of strikes me is that there seems to be sort of this chicken or the egg situation mm -hmm. where the composition of the ocean impacts biology, but then biology has this profound impact on the composition of the ocean. And so is it possible to sort of tease out what is more more of a profound impact? That's a very nice question. Um, you can differ for the physical process has a, an impact in some things and then the biological process have has an impact in, in other things. Together, they produce an impact in the, in the carbon. Which one happened first, or how, or, or or how it happened? It's it's harder to tell, but it's but it's a it's a very good question in climate in climate science. What happened first uh, when we see a transition from one state of the climate to the other? It's a it, it's it's a very interesting question. But um, I I study the last ice age as a as a steady state, so as an equilibrium state, as a state that didn't change. So I'm not studying the transition from a, from an interglacial to a glacial cycle, uh, to a glacial period, sorry. Um, so that's like basically you're um, assuming maybe the most uh, plausible condition, I guess, to, exactly. to start at, and right. that's how you kind of start to... But, build on your model. Just well, uh, we we don't have you know. I guess at some point it went from a glacial to an interglacial, but just what you're trying to reconstruct is probably the most likely scenario. Yes, but at this yeah, but this chicken and egg qu uh, question always comes up in climate science. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting. It's 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 really interesting because you see huge changes in the climate, and there. There could be many mechanisms that explain them, and sometimes it's altogether explain them. For example, in my case, it's physics and biology, but which one came first is is a is is is, is a very interesting thing to look at. And I guess that's sort of one thing that you had mentioned earlier was this idea of trying to assign a mechanism to what um, to be able to. Um, validate your model in a sense and so your work does delve into um sort of developing this mechanism is that yes yeah. yes of course because i since i i have a in my model i have a i have a relation between 
the, the tracers that scientists measure and the physical and biogeochemical characteristics of the ocean. So I have those mechanisms in my model. And what I can see is uh, if I change the, the tracers according to what scientists see, then I can, I can see what the physics and biogeochemical characteristics of the ocean were. I too have those mechanisms. However, I do not look at how the climate system arrived to those states. So that's interesting in that there's a model just to account for the steady state um, equilibrium of the climate at one point. Yes, well, it's if you want to really the, the ultimate the ultimate goal of, of climate science in a way is to have a, a model that is able to both um, reproduce what we know about different climate states of the of the earth and transition between them but that is but but as a start you need to at least be able to reproduce an equilibrium state like for example the modern ocean or the glacial ocean then as a second step which are there are scientists at this moment in the in the climate science that are trying to do this you can uh, try to link them and that is the what is called more out of um to model something in the in the out of equilibrium state okay so i guess this is uh, another question I have is, is that a focus of climate scientists is to integrate these different models into more of a larger overarching model? Or is, um, do you think there's more of a push toward developing finer resolution to look at the detail? Mm -hmm. Both things are, are, are being done. So for the when in, in global models, like for example, my model who, who really can only explain like the general characteristics, the general currents and the general biology of the ocean without too much detail. Uh, these models, they are trying to be refined uh, in order to both reproduce different climate states. And then if you know that you can reproduce different climate states, you can use them to um, something that I know is interesting to many people, you can use them to try to predict what could happen in the climate system in the future. At the same time, there is another branch of scientists who um, try to do smaller scale models, like for example, a model that only that is only focused on a small part of the ocean, some island or the coast of Oregon, for example, or a river mouth, and they, 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 they go to the fine detail of the physics and they try to understand every, every feature that sometimes they see in satellites and things like that. That is also another uh, important part because uh, it has, a, it has a, a, a very high local impact. Mm -hmm. For example, here in, Ocean, in, in Oregon, there is an interest for uh, modeling with the most detail possible the, the, the coastal system of the state because that's going to be important for fisheries, for fishermen who go out in the sea and want to know if they will have fish. So that is like the finer resolution models uh, who, of, of course, work on a smaller timescale. So they try to understand what happens with, uh, with an event that 
is of the order of days or months or years, the, or the other models, the models like mine, we try to understand what happens on, on with, with an event that is important for the hundreds or thousands of years. And then as I understand it, as we were talking earlier, um, some models like the one that you've developed are, um, I guess, you know, predictive over a certain time scale, but may not apply into the future, for example, or not very far into the future as, as we know it. Um, but others um, are being developed possibly to say what will happen amidst, I guess, increased CO2 into yes. the oceans and circulating around. Um, yes, you have to, when you try to understand what the climate will be like in the future, you have to use a model that is not so detailed that you will end up with a lot of uncertainty. If I try to predict what this small feature of the ocean, this small current of the ocean that, I don't know, circles some peninsula or something is going to be like in a hundred years, it's very, it's quite possible that I will get it wrong because there is high uncertainty. What, but what I can do is to see what will happen in the large scale of the of the ocean. And with that I can I can sort of predict some local impacts, but um the longer we want to go in the future into the future in trying to predict what the climate system will look like, uh, the simpler the model you have to you have to use if you want to have lower low uncertainty. Okay. Oh, that's really fascinating. Yeah. So wanted to take a step back and find out what led you to this study of developing climate models. What did you study early on in your science career? And sort of, did you always know that you wanted to be an oceanographer or a climatologist? I, I don't think I always wanted to be an oceanographer or climatologist, but I've always wanted to be a scientist. And I have always been interested in the past and also in the ocean. I'm from a coastal town, Puerto Madryn, in, in Argentina. And uh, my my dad is a is a geologist, and my mother was a marine botanist. So I would I also I always liked those things, uh, and I always wanted to be a, a scientist. I I then after graduating from sky, high school, I decided to go to to physics, to study physics, but always with the idea of working on something to do with the ocean, uh, maybe maybe even marine biology. Um, I After I graduated from, from physics in Argentina, I applied to several schools here in the United States to work on, on oceanography. And here in OSU, my, I, I, got a, I got a call from my current advisor, uh, Andreas Schmidtner, who works on paleoceanography and climate modeling, telling me about this project that he had about the ocean in the past. And it was, a, it, it was really a field that I didn't know, I didn't know about. I didn't, I didn't know it existed. But when he described it to me, he described it was a combination of physics and oceanography and paleontology. I was completely hooked because it was the three, the three things that I always love. So I say, where, I, where do I sign in? <laughs> and I... I came here a couple of months later. Really cool. That's like that's great that um, I guess your your background in physics was uh, very useful in, in developing some of these climate models, and it seemed like it was a pretty good uh, background for you. I guess. Yes. Yes. I um, I actually got the 
the advice to study physics from my mom. She we were um, in 2002. She was a, uh, she also worked in science, and we were at a conference, and she was a, an old school botanist. So she did a more descriptive uh, science. But uh, she was seeing in the in the at the beginning of the last decade that uh, most uh, oceanography works were focusing on on understanding processes or on describing processes. So when I was 15, she told me that if I wanted to be a, a a successful scientist, it was better that I studied physics because that way I would understand processes, uh, not just know how to describe things that I saw. So with that advice, I three years later I studied I studied physics. Um, I think it was a good advice as a physicist. I can. Um, I, I was I was able to have a, a, a fast understanding of 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 the ocean system. Although I, I it was my my undergrad was not focused on oceanography. Yeah, you did actually have an undergrad project your um, that you worked on Fortran, which actually ended up being yes. relevant for you. Fortran your... is the the model, uh, or I guess the computer language. I guess the computer use. language that that most climate models use. Yes, I although I didn't do anything related to oceanography other than take one or two classes during my 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 undergraduate in Argentina. I did work um, on computer modeling of of statistical mechanics. So with that, I got a background in modeling. That was very useful to to work on climate models. I don't think I would have been able to to start a PhD in climate modeling if I hadn't had the chance to first um, had, have experience in, in in computer modeling. Interesting. That, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, that's a really interesting point because I think that talking to many graduate students, um, those formative research experiences in their undergrad really propel them forward to do more, to do better research when they go to graduate school. Yeah, I could vouch for that as well. And um, just to get back to, I guess, climate modeling in a more general sense, um, I guess, so maybe there are a lot of challenges in communicating your research or that people who are paleo-oceanographers might have in terms of communicating with non-scientists and the general public or uh, journalists or something because you are taking in uh, to account various other um, assumptions, uncertainties. You're building models on top of previous models. Mm -hmm. And so maybe like someone who is not um, very educated in science might say, well, that might just be, uh, how how do we even know that? sounds like you're making something up. Um, So... Um, of course, it's a scientifically rigorous process. Um, do you have any, or do you have like uh, colleagues who um, sort of know how to portray this to a non-scientist, and, and how do they communicate the, the science that you do? So, um, when I, whenever I say it's it's funny because whenever I say a work on climate modeling, when when I'm in an airplane or something like that. Um, Currently, because of the news and all this thing about climate change and this concern about climate change, many people sort of know that my type of scientist exists. Um, Luckily, I have always had um, good encounters with people. People uh, 
will tell to me something like, oh, please save the earth or save the ocean or yeah. save the fish, <laughs> save the whales, things like that, which is, which is funny. Of course, I, my part in this science is, is a small piece of this jigsaw puzzle. Uh, um, I have colleagues that have had more negative encounters, so they have uh, encountered people who feel very passionate about um, climate change, and maybe they 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 take it as a more religious thing, and they say something like, "I don't believe in climate science." So they, they I I don't believe in climate science, or I or I should say, I I don't believe in climate change. And maybe they they have a hard time, even if they work on paleoceanographies, which is we we are not we at our lab we're not trying to understand what will happen in the future. We are trying to understand past climate cycles. But people connected to things. Um, another interesting thing is that I have I have had some very interesting conversation with physicists who are not in the field of climate scientists, who are very um, Curious uh, about the the processes in the ocean that I that I study, and and many of the processes, although they are totally physical, so they are they are not some weird chemical or biological thing. They are they are things that come out from physics and they from from very basic equations. Uh, they haven't heard of them because they work on something else, like for example, climate. Uh, sorry, quantum mechanics or 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 nuclear physics and um, there are some so i have had interesting conversations with physicists who really had never heard of the of the of the ocean processes that i studied so it's like you know you're taking physics but you're using it to either describe i guess uh, quantum mechanics or you can use physics to describe pretty much anything right right yes as far as we know and we just need to be uh, cognizant of what we don't know that we know. <laughs> I like that. Um, so we're coming to the end of our interview, actually, and wanted to um, go ahead and ask your advice. This is a tradition on our show where we have our guests um, convey their advice to themselves before they started graduate school or uh, some other student who's potentially looking at pursuing graduate school. So my advice is to take science with patience, to know that you can't force results to occur, and that you have to communicate with others to, and tell them that you are working. You, you can say, I'm working on it. And um, you don't need to have results all the time. Some people, some graduate students get very uh, frustrated and anxious during the first years of, of, their, of their scientist careers because it's, they see it very hard to obtain results and like write papers and, and have nice posters in conferences. But my advice is uh, science takes its time to happen and you have to... Just enjoy the ride. Um, don't stay until midnight working on your lab just because you think you have to get this result today because that's not the way you're going to get that result. That's some great advice, Juan, I think. Um, 
And then we've got another tradition as well at the end of our interviews where um, we have our guest pick a song. So Juan, can you tell us uh, what song you picked and why you chose it for this week? So I picked a, a song by composer Silvio Rodriguez. It's called Ojalá. The reason I, I picked this song is because it's a song about not wanting things to happen. In my field, in the climate science field, field um, where people work on trying to understand what the what in a way they are connected to 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 things that will that could happen in the future to the ocean they sometimes feel that they are trying to put all these jigsaw all these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together to understanding an inevitable doom of the climate system as we know it and they and a lot of people get anxious and and maybe depressed because of of the of the type of things that we're trying to understand because there are things that will be crucial for the future of humanity um and this song is about all the, all of that because it's a song that says um i hope i don't get to see this interesting yeah. all right well thanks a lot Juan. Uh, that and was really great thank you okay so silvio rodriguez with ojalá <laughs> 